All right. So uh, tonight we are going to be in session number eight of our series on the church. And what we're going to talk about tonight is when we gather, what happens when we gather. All right. So first thing I want to address is the regulative principle of worship. So raise your hand if you have if you have ever heard of or are familiar with the regulative principle of worship. All right. A couple. Good deal. All right. So uh, the regulative principle of worship essentially tells us that what the church does is what the church does in Scripture. That, that's essentially what the regulative principle of worship tells us. That what we should be doing are the things that we see the church doing in Scripture. All right? The Second London Baptist Confession, uh, the first chapter, paragraph 6, says this, The whole counsel of God concerning everything essential for his own glory and man's salvation, faith, and life is either explicitly stated or by necessary inference contained in the Holy Scriptures. Nothing is ever to be added to the scriptures, either by new revelation of the Spirit or by human traditions. Nevertheless, we acknowledge that the inward illumination of the Spirit of God is necessary for a saving understanding of what is revealed in the Word. We recognize that some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of, of the church are common to human actions and organizations and are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian wisdom, following the general rules of the Word, which must always be observed. All right, so trying to kind of summarize that as it relates to our purposes. The regulative principle of worship asserts that when the church gathers together, it is regulated by Scripture. Only what Scripture commands or shows is what should be done in the gathering of the church. Now, there are other things that are left to our own decisions, and we'll talk more about that in a minute, but I want to address the regulated portion of this first. All right, this has roots in the Old Testament law has roots in the Old Testament law. God was very specific in the law as it relates to how he was to be worshipped. He did not tell the nation of Israel, worship me however you feel like. He gave very specific instructions. And there were, very, there were dire consequences when those regulations were veered away from. In Leviticus 10 verses 1 through 3, this is uh, Nadab. Now, Nahab, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and, authorized, and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. So, God had laid out how the things of worship were to be done in the tabernacle. And one day, Nadab and Abihu, the priests, got a wild hair. And they thought, hey, this might be a cool thing to add to our worship. And so they took some fire on their censer and added some extra incense and tried to offer that to the Lord. And the Lord said, no, thank you. And fire came out and literally burnt them to a crisp and they died. All right. And notice how Moses addressed this situation, how the Lord addressed this situation through Moses. This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. In other words, 
God essentially says to Aaron, who is the, the chief priest, the high priest, look, I know your sons are dead, but the right worship of God is more important. And among those who are near, the priests, those who are the ones participating in the tabernacle worship, I will be sanctified before them and before all the people, I will be glorified. In other words, if you persist in worshiping in ways that are outside the bounds of what I have laid out for you, this is going to keep happening. And it doesn't always happen in this way, right? Uh, In the book of Malachi, which I'll be preaching through starting in November, um, you see the Lord take issue with how they worship and they're offering sacrifices that are impure. They're blemished. They're taking their three-legged animals and things like that, the things that are not valuable, and offering that to the Lord. And the Lord is not causing fire to consume them, but he is allowing famine to come into the land and those sorts of things. Almost all of Israel's issues all go back to improper worship. All right, so we can rightly take from this that the Lord cares how he is worshiped. He has special interest in that. Now, we are no longer bound by the ceremonial laws that we see in the Old Testament. All right, those no longer apply to us, so we don't have to worry about offering the right kind of fire and the right kind of incense. That's not something we have to be concerned with, but the principle does still apply. All right. The New Testament specifies that our worship is to be orderly and for the purposes of building up. In 1 Corinthians 14, uh, Paul, speaking to the Corinthian church, which frankly was just an absolute mess, uh, he says in 1426, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. And I'll pause there. So what was happening in the Corinthian church is that when they came together, everybody wanted to get in on the action. Oh, I got something to say. Oh, I got something to sing. I got something to do. And everybody wanted to get in on it. And Paul essentially was saying, you guys are doing these things for your own glory. The things that you are doing when the church gathers together are supposed to be for the building up of the body. That was one of the things that he focused on in their understanding and their practice of speaking in tongues. They wanted to speak in tongues because it showed them to be hyper-spiritual, but it had zero value for the gathered church without an interpreter. All right? And then Paul concludes that section in verse 40 by saying, but all things should be done decently and in order. All right? So one of the ways that things are done for building up in the gathering of the church is that they are done decently and in order. Okay? This is one of the things that the regulative principle of worship helps to accomplish, okay? Because we are built up by the focus on the scriptures, okay? The scriptures is what we need, all right? I recognize that it is very popular among bigger churches these days to do series like At the Movies, where they spend the summer exegeting the different blockbusters at the movie theater, That won't happen here as long as I'm your pastor because that is of zero value because when you die and stand before Jesus and you tell him, well, look, I I don't know the scriptures, but I can tell you the plot of Avengers Endgame like that. Well, that's going to be of zero value to you. Okay. And so that a focus on the scriptures is what builds us up. It also prevents us from 
being very confused by the things that are taking place in our worship gathering because confusion does not lend itself well to being able to worship. That's, so going back to the speaking in tongues thing, right? If someone stands up and begins to speak in tongues without an interpreter, nobody else in the gathering is going, praise the Lord for his goodness. Everybody else is going, what did he say? What was that? Did that make any sense to you? It does not build up. Okay, And so when we think about doing things decently and in order for the sake of building up, when we root ourselves in the scriptures, those things are accomplished. Because ultimately, the regulative principle of worship places our focus where it should be on the word of God, which is what we need. All right. Uh, That reference is wrong. That should say 2 Timothy 3, uh, 15 through 17. Um, And so this is what it says. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All right, so based upon this, we see a natural progression here. The scriptures are able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So the scriptures contain what we need for salvation. But not only do they contain what we need for salvation, it is all breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. So much so that scripture alone is what makes the man of God complete and equipped for every good work. So, If you never get to read another book again, if you never get another devotional, if you never get another commentary or anything like that, if you never get to read anything other than your Bible, you have all you need. That's it. The Bible is not only sufficient, it is complete. Everything else we have is, in Louisiana terms, lanyard. And so when we use the regulative principle of worship, we are rightly applying what this text says to our church's gatherings. Because if the scriptures have all that we need, why should we approach the gatherings of the church as though we need to add to the word in order to be sufficient for worship? Right? If the scriptures contain all we need, then we shouldn't need to approach them as, let's add to the scriptures so that our worship is good enough or sufficient for what we want it to be. Now, I will say that there are some who have misapplied the regulative principle of worship. Uh, famously, the Church of Christ <laughs> denomination is guilty of this. Uh, by and large, they do not do anything within their churches unless they see it explicitly stated in Scripture. So they typically do not have musical instrumentation when they sing together on Sunday mornings because... The New Testament, and specifically the New Testament, okay? So the New Testament doesn't mention the playing of instruments. It just mentions singing. So that's what they do. They just sing. Now, it does have a nice side effect of the fact that if you go to a Church of Christ service, they harmonize like nobody's business. They bust out the hymnal and sing them parts, and it's amazing. But it's a misapplication of the regulative principle of worship. In In some of the more extreme cases... They refuse to have things like kitchens in their churches because the New Testament never says 
they cooked food in the church. So they don't have kitchens. They think unless it is explicitly said in the Bible, in the New Testament, they can't do it. But notice what I quoted earlier from the London Baptist Confession, where it says that the whole counsel of God concerning everything essential for his own glory and man's salvation, faith, and life is either explicitly stated or by necessary inference contained in the Holy Scriptures. That's where we would differ. They would get to explicitly state it and stop, and we don't. Okay? Historically, the regulative principle of worship allows for considerable freedom in the form of a, in the form of a given element. So, for example, uh, some of the, the battles that have been had in church history have been over whether or not we are allowed to pray prayers that we write ourselves or think of ourselves versus praying prayers that come out of the Bible or out of a book of prayer. All right? The regular principle of worship gives us freedom in that. I typically write down the prayers that I pray on Sunday mornings, but they're mine. Okay? Uh, I have that freedom. Uh, we, also have, um, we also have freedom in the circumstances of the gathering. We have freedom in regards to what time we gather together. Uh, we have freedom in terms of seating arrangements. Believe it or not, the Bible never has the word pews in it. You might be shocked by that. Some old folks are. Um, you know, it, it doesn't mention pews, so seating arrangements, means of sound projection. All right, we are allowed to have a sound system. That is up to us, even though it's not explicitly mentioned in the Bible. Um, instrumentation, lighting, whether or not the building has air conditioning, Praise the Lord. These are all things that we have the freedom of our own d design to say we are going to do these things or not do these things and how. Okay? Y'all following me there? In what the, what the regulator principle of worship does say and doesn't say. All right? So that leads us to the question, what do we do when we gather together? What do we do when we gather together? All right, so we're going to break this down into the following categories. All right, the first one is the proclamation of God's word. And I would argue that this is probably the most important one that takes place when the church gathers. And there are two primary ways that this happens. Number one, through scripture reading. And number two, through preaching and or teaching, depending on how you want to parse the word. Okay, we also have prayer, we have singing, and then we have the ordinances, which that just skipped backwards, I apologize. We have the ordinances, which are baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those are the things that the Bible talks about happening when the church gathers together. All right? I want you to notice some things that are markedly absent. Things like interpretive dance teams puppet shows, all sorts of things that have been brought into the Sunday morning gathered worship service over the course of the last 50 or so years for the sake of reaching people. What's Baptism in the Lord's Supper. That's ordinances. Okay. Those things are not something that we do or should be doing in the gathered worship service. Now, that is not to say that those are things that cannot happen as a part of the life of the church. 
but they happen in different settings than the Sunday morning gathering. Does that make sense? So if you decide, Brother Corey, I really want to bless the church with a puppet show. Okay? I will allow you to say, I'm going to do a puppet show on Tuesday at 6 p.m. in the fellowship hall. Anybody who wants to come see my puppet show, please come. More power to you. I am not going to say, well, sure, we'll move the pulpit and you can do that instead of the preaching on Sunday morning. And you guys laugh at that. There are churches that do that. Okay? I'm not just making this up. It really happens. Okay? Um, So let's go through these things and talk about what they are and what they aren't. and, And we'll kind of walk through this together. All right? So... First thing, scripture reading. In uh, 1 Timothy 4.13, Paul tells Timothy, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture. Scripture is powerful, even when there is no explanation offered with it. One of the unfortunate things that has happened in the American church in particular is that we have gotten away from just scripture reading to the point where anytime scripture is read, people kind of get confused. Like, well, who's going to explain this to us? Who's going to give us the little mini sermon every time scripture is read? Um, I had a couple of folks in our church when we started reading scripture come to me a little confused. Like, why are we doing this? Well, the reason why we're doing this is because of what the Bible says in places like Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Folks, here's the reality. No matter what I say when I stand up and preach the word, it's still not as meaningful or important as scripture itself. My words are but a faint whisper of the majesty of Christ contained within the pages of the Bible. The word of God stands on its own. And that's why we read it on Sunday mornings without offering explanation, without any commentary. It's because it is what it is. And, you know, and I have that little rotating blurb in the bulletin that explains what the readings are for, why we have them. And once you understand that, I feel like they stand on their own. A revelation reading to reveal who God is, an assurance of pardon reading to remind us what Christ has done for us and how we have forgiveness of sins, a call to worship to call our hearts to worship the Lord, and a, big, and a benediction to remind us who we are and whose we are as we leave. And so those things are, are read for those purposes. We also have preaching, all right? In 2 Timothy 4.2, Paul tells Timothy, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. The preaching of God's word is God's ordained method for communicating the gospel to sinners. This is how the Lord proclaims the truth of the gospel. Romans 10, 14 through 17. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. 
For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so what we see here in this passage is people cannot be saved without hearing the gospel verbally proclaimed with words. Okay, you've heard me say before that quote that goes around that is falsely attributed to St. Francis, preach the gospel and whenever necessary, use words. That's not a real quote. It's not a good quote. You can't preach the gospel by washing your car. You can't preach the gospel by falling down on rollerblades. You can only preach the gospel by using words. And this is what the Lord has ordained in the gathering of the church to proclaim the gospel using words. Because pastoring is ultimately about ensuring salvation for ourselves and others. 1 Timothy 4, 13 through 16 Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So the aim of preaching is to firmly ground us in the gospel, to firmly ground us in Christ. Preaching should seek conversion by exalting Christ as Savior and Lord, but it should also seek maturity by rooting believers more firmly in the knowledge of God and to equip them for more effective service to him. It must do both, not just one, not just the other. Sound preaching does both. All right, we also have prayer. 2 Timothy 2, 1. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. All right, so again, Paul is giving commands to Timothy as a pastor. And so that's where we're drawing these things from. He's giving commands to Timothy as a pastor. And what we see is we see a pattern emerging in our prayers to God in this verse. All right, supplications is when we ask God for things that we need. We are asking God to supply our needs. Supplications. All right? The ESV uses prayers there. That could also be understood as praising God. Prayers of adoration. All right? And so praising God is another prayer that we see. We also see intercession. That is asking God to help others. All right? That's the one that we do most often. In our prayer times, when we say so-and-so is sick, so-and-so just lost their, lost their grandfather, whatever it may be, that's the kind of prayers that we most often see. And then thanksgivings, thanking God for his blessings, all right? Our prayers should, should look like all of these, not just one of them. It should look like all of them. But that's the kind of pattern that we see in the way that the church prays. So you may have noticed that in our, in our Sunday morning order of service, a.k.a. the liturgy, when you, you may have noticed that there is a specific prayer for the church and a specific prayer of adoration and confession. Okay? That in one, we are praying specifically for our church and the church around the world in a variety of ways. And in the other, we are praying, uh, we are praying in adoration of God, confessing our sin, being grateful for his forgiveness that he has shown to us. That's why there are different kinds of prayers that serve different kinds of purposes. Okay? 
We also have singing. Singing. Ephesians 5.19 says, Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So this is another place where the regulative principle of worship has caused some division within the church. Some people would say, the only kinds of songs that we should sing are the psalms. That's it. We can only sing the psalms. We can only sing the things that are found in the Bible. Now, others have argued, and I agree with them, that unless you also say that the sermon has to come exclusively from the Bible, you can't say that your songs have to exclusively come from the Bible. Okay? That's the position that I hold. I think that that's accurate. As you notice, we don't only sing psalms. We do sing psalms sometimes, and we're introducing more and more of them as we have access to them. Okay? But the idea here, more than anything else, is that the songs that we sing should seek to rightly praise God and to edify one another, to build one another up. This is why we are striving to have special emphasis on the lyrical content of our songs here at Evans Creek. When I came here, I sat down with Scott after I was officially brought here as the pastor, because, you know, Scott was the chair of the search committee, and we'd had multiple conversations. But after I came here, Scott said, I want to talk with you about the songs that we sing. And I said, sure. And so we sat down, and Scott said, okay, so, you know, what kind of songs do you want us to sing? And I said, songs with good lyrical content. And he was like, okay, but do you have, like, a preference in terms of, like, musical style? I said, nope, I don't care about that. I said, what I care about is lyrical content. That's all that matters to me. As long as it's something that our people can sing along to and it is good lyrically, I'm fine with it. And Scott was in total agreement. I don't want y'all to hear that and think, oh, Corey had to convince Scott to only sing good lyrical content songs. Um, Scott was in total agreement with that. And that's been the thing that we have focused on ever since. Every week, Scott picks songs. I almost never do this, but there have been times where I'm like, hey, let's do this one instead. But we focus on that because we take it seriously. It's not just about the songs that people want to hear that they like or that they're going to sing loud. It's the songs that go along with, often it goes along with our fighter verses. It goes along with our scripture readings. It goes along with the sermon passage, whatever it may be as a means of helping us to rightly understand and apply those things to our hearts. That's the purpose of singing, to praise God and to build one another up. And so that means we have to be theologically discerning. We have to be theologically discerning. One of the things that actually strongly encouraged my heart when I came here in view of a call was that you've probably heard of the song Reckless Love, Okay, Um, that song lyrically is pretty sound, except for the fact that it's called reckless love. Because reckless is a bad thing. It's used that way in the Bible. It's, It's exclusively used in negative ways in the Bible. And so to turn around and say God has reckless love is a bad thing. And when I came here in view of a call, the song started and I thought, oh, no. But then. I noticed that they had changed, Scott had changed the words of the song from reckless to selfless in an effort to say, 
we're going to make this song lyrically sound. And I appreciated that. I was greatly encouraged by that as a prospective pastor coming here and saying, okay, they get it. <laughs> they get it. Because so many churches sing that song at the top of their lungs and argue about how it's totally cool to sing it and there's no problem with it. And that's wrong. We must be theologically discerning in what we sing. Because, here's the truth, the songs that we sing are proclaiming things about God. And so if your songs that you're singing are not lyrically sound, you are blaspheming. That's bad. You might even be committing accidental heresy. That's really bad. Unless you think it's only the newfangled worship tunes that fall into this trap, there are some garbage songs in the hymnal. I'm just going to be real honest with you. There is some bad lyrical content in the hymnal. Okay? So we have to be theologically discerning. And so this is part of the role that you as a church play. Just like I encourage you often, if you hear me saying something in a sermon that's incorrect or something in a lesson that's incorrect, to come and talk to me. If Scott leads us in a song that you feel like is theologically wrong, you need to confront him on that. And I don't mean like stand up and shake your fist and say, no, no. Trust me, if it's bad enough, I'll do that. But you should go to him and say, hey, listen, I'm not so sure about this song. I'm, I'm not so sure that this is when we ought to be singing. And here's why. I guarantee you, Scott will listen to you. He'll talk with you about it. He's not going to fight you or anything. Okay? But that's part of our role in being theologically discerning. All right? So now we move into the ordinances. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. These things are physical representations of the gospel. That's the purpose that they serve. They are physical representations of the gospel. They are visible signs and seals of participation in the new covenant. Which means that we need to be especially faithful in how we approach these things. So first, let's talk about baptism. Baptism portrays our spiritual death to sin, our symbolic burial with Christ, and our resurrection with him to new life. Romans 6, 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, I want to be really clear here because circling back around to the church of Christ, this is one of the things that they get wrong. They believe that baptism is necessary for salvation. That Christ's sacrifice gets you so far and then you must be baptized to get the rest of the way. That is not biblically accurate. Christ's death is all that is necessary for salvation. Baptism does not save. It plays no part in your salvation. It is simply a believer and a church jointly proclaiming, we believe this person's testimony, this person's testimony of salvation to be genuine and true. And they are celebrating that by participating in this physical representation of their salvation. That's what it's for. That's what it does. Now, 
according to the teaching of the New Testament and the teaching of church history. Baptism is required for church membership. And it is required for church membership because it was commanded by Jesus. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. All right? So, baptism is required for church membership because it is the first step of obedience after we have been regenerated unto new life. Also, baptism is done by the church for the church. This is one of those hills that I will die on. Baptism is not something that is done in random settings by random people. Okay? If you get saved at summer camp, awesome. You shouldn't get baptized in the creek at summer camp. You should be baptized by your church. Now, that does not mean that you have to be baptized in the baptistry in your church building. Okay? There are numerous stories of people who, for whatever reason, were physically unable to get up into the baptistry. That's okay. We'll go to a swimming pool. We'll go down to the creek. We'll go wherever you can go to be baptized by immersion. All right? The word baptizo means immersed, dunked in the water. Okay? So to be rightly baptized, that must happen. All right? Now... The reason why I say that I'll die on the hill of baptism being done by the church and for the church is because of what I just said a couple minutes ago. How baptism is a public proclamation of someone's testimony of the gospel. And it is the church saying, we agree, we affirm your testimony. That's why it's so important that that baptism is done by the church and for the church. Okay? When it's done by whoever, wherever, whenever... You're missing a vital component. You're just getting wet. All right. Um, the regulative principle of worship also requires immersion, baptism of believers only. All right. There is no scriptural evidence of infant baptism or of baptism of non believers. Those things do not exist in scripture. There is no category for baptizing babies in the Bible. People point to, oh, so-and-so's household. His whole household was baptized. Well, it doesn't exactly list off who was there. You have zero proof that there was an infant among them. Okay? You're making, you're making a, a claim that is not backed up with actual scripture. Also, because the word is baptizo, which means immersion, that would mean that they were literally taking babies and dunking them in the water, which seems a little far-fetched to me. Okay? You have to completely change the mode of baptism, again, violating Scripture. To, you have to change the mode to sprinkling in order to extend baptism to people who baptism is not intended for. Okay? I'm not going to get into a whole theological spiel about infant baptism and and what it is and why it's wrong. We can talk more about that later, but just rest assured it's wrong. All right. Also, there are other false churches that practice things like baptism for the dead. Um, which they're not even Christian churches, but they, they say you can be baptized for someone who was, not a, who was not a believer, who has passed on, 
Um, also not a thing, all right? There is only one valid biblical baptism, and that is the immersion of a believer into water. That's it. All right? Moving on to the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a physical representation of Christ's death for us. You should be very familiar with this passage of Scripture because you hear me read it to you once a month. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So the Lord's Supper... Primarily, as I said, is a physical representation of Christ's death for us. But it serves a multitude of purposes in terms of the application of Scripture to our lives. And you probably have noticed that when our church takes the Lord's Supper, I preach my sermon, I pray, and then I talk about how the Lord's Supper is an application of what I just preached. So last week, I preached on living in community, and I talked about how the Lord's Supper is our means of, one of our means of practicing community with one another, reminding each other of the death of Christ, of his death and burial and resurrection. That is how the Lord's Supper functions for us. It is a, not just a physical reminder of what Christ has done, but it is an actual, tangible representation of who Jesus is to us that we partake in together. Okay? Now, the Roman Catholics believe that Jesus is physically present in the elements. They believe that when the priest blesses the wafer and the wine, that it literally becomes the flesh and the blood of Jesus and that you are literally a spiritual cannibal when you take communion at the Catholic Church. Okay? That's not real. All right? That is not a thing. We are not physically eating Jesus or physically drinking his blood. But historically, Baptists have believed in something called the spiritual presence in the elements of the Lord's Supper. In the sense that we get benefit from partaking of the Lord's Supper. Our faith is increased. Our love for Christ is increased by partaking of the Lord's Supper together because it is a way that we are strongly reminded. Like he said, like like Paul says in the passage that every time we do this, we remember that this is the body of Jesus that he gave for us and we do it in remembrance of him. Okay? That's the whole idea behind the Lord's Supper. And it is done in response to what Christ has done. We are receiving Jesus in taking the Lord's Supper. It is our way of recognizing that we are all called. It's a way, one way of recognizing in Scripture that we are dependent upon Christ. That everything we are called to in Scripture can only happen We can only accomplish these things through Christ's death, through his life. 
We are incapable of doing the things that the scriptures call us to apart from Jesus. We have to have him. That's the whole idea of what the Lord's Supper is supposed to help us to be reminded of. Now, before we end, before we move on, I want to talk briefly about something that might get me in trouble. I want to talk about invitations. I want to talk about invitations. So, in the vast majority of Baptist churches, and in a lot of churches, they do what's called an invitation. After the sermon, the pastor stands down front, usually alone, very awkwardly, and we sing a song, and we ask people to come. Some churches get pretty desperate with it. And the whole time we're singing, the pastor's like, just one come, just one come. They, uh, they extend the song as much as possible. I know the Lord's moving out there, just one come. And I don't want to upset anyone. I don't want to make anybody angry. But here's the truth. There's no evidence of scripture of this being a thing. The closest thing we see is like at the end of Peter's sermon on Pentecost where he says, repent and believe the gospel. And it tells us that people were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number. But there's zero evidence of Peter saying, okay, now, now John's going to play a song and the altar's open and you can come and pray with us. You see what I'm saying? There's no evidence of this being a thing. There is an invitation in the sense of an invitation to repent and believe the gospel. But there is not an invitation to come down front and do something right then. Now, I want to build out on this a little bit, just kind of logically, okay? First of all, the question we need to ask is, who is the gathering for? When we gather together as a church, who is that for? Well, first and foremost, it's for God, right? We come together to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. It is also for us, right? Like we talked about earlier, we are called to come together, to gather together, to do things to build one another up, to love and encourage one another, to exhort one another, to rebuke one another. All of those things are present. So we see that the gathering is for the Lord and the gathering is for the Christian. The gathering is not for non-believers. That is not to say that they are not able to participate and come. But Mark Dever says it really well. When the church gathers together, unbelievers should feel welcomed, but out of place. Because they are out of place. They cannot worship the Lord Jesus Christ. They cannot be built up by the scriptures. They cannot be edified by the songs. Those things are not possible for them because they are lacking something vital. The Holy Spirit. And so when we 
when, 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 we, when I think about, when Pastor Michael and I think about, when Brother Scott and I think about what we do when we gather together, I am not thinking about what non-believers are going to find comforting or helpful. Because the gospel is a stumbling block to them. Apart from the work of regeneration in their heart, these things are going to be inherently confusing and unhelpful to them. And when we try to shape our gatherings around non-believers, we end up losing things that we should not lose. We end up focusing on areas that we should not be focused, right? We end up focusing on we need to have exceptional music and we need to have laser light shows and fog machines because those are the things that are going to draw a crowd. We need to, on Easter Sunday, give out cars and televisions. There was a movie that recently came out that I saw an ad for that I thought was a great premise for a movie. And the whole idea is these two men are on staff. One's the pastor, one's the youth pastor. And the pastor gets sucked into this, I got to have the big bad spectacle to draw in a crowd. And the youth pastor is like, hey, maybe we should just preach the gospel. And the pastor gets this idea, you know what we're going to do on Easter Sunday? I'm going to get crucified on stage live. And the youth pastor is going, let's not do this. Maybe let's just preach the gospel. And I thought this is such a perfect representation of what I see happening in the church. Or you've got one side who is so focused on let's do whatever we can to draw in a crowd. And you've got the other side going, hey, the gospel is sufficient. Let's just focus on that. And that's where we are as far as the invitation goes. Because if the gathering is for God and for believers, who is the invitation for? Non-believers. We have dedicated an entire chunk of our Sunday morning worship gathering to people who it's not even for. That seems a little odd. And I understand the heart behind it. I, I recognize the desire, right? Like if, if people hear the gospel and their hearts are moved, then we need to, we need to strike while the iron is hot, right? We need, to, we need to immediately draw them in. Charles Spurgeon was once confronted by a lady in his church. You probably heard me say this before. And she was upset because he didn't do invitations and he took Mondays off. And he would tell people, he would say, listen, if you have questions about salvation, if you have questions about any of these things, I'll be in my office Tuesday morning. You can come by and talk to me. And she, she came to him and she was very frustrated and, and, and upset. And she said, you know, I just can't believe that you're letting these opportunities to, to bring people to salvation in Christ pass you by. And Spurgeon said, ma'am, if the Holy Spirit is moving on Sunday, I guarantee you he will still be moving on Tuesday. The mentality of we have to strike while the iron is hot flies in the face of what the Bible teaches us about salvation, which is that it is a work of God, not of men. So you probably have noticed that when we do the Lord's Supper, we do the Lord's Supper in place of the invitation. It doesn't replace the sermon. It doesn't get added on as something else. It replaces the invitation. And that is intentional. Intentional. 
Because I believe that the best way for Christians to respond to the, to the proclamation of God's word is by taking the Lord's Supper together. It is the way that we can respond collectively to God's word preached. To say, these things are right and good, and we need Christ to make them real to us. I have not fought against the invitation here. I've not put my foot in the ground and said, I'm never going to do it. And I'm not doing that now. That's not what I'm saying. I am bringing this up as something for us to consider as a church. Because when we think about what we do when we gather, and if we think about the fact that it should be Lined, like we should look to scripture as for what we do. Then we need to rightly recognize that that is not something found in scripture. And so maybe we should reconsider. I'll be 100% honest with you. As your pastor, my preference would be that we eliminate the invitation and take the Lord's Supper together every Sunday. That would be my preference. I know I've had some church members come to me and say, hey, why don't we take the Lord's Supper every Sunday? And I say to them, that's a good question. We should talk more about that. That is what I see in Scripture. The Scriptures seem to indicate that every time the church gathered together, they took the Lord's Supper together. That seems to be the pattern of the church in the New Testament. And I understand that we live in a heavily Roman Catholic area and... Taking the, taking the Eucharist every week is something the Catholics do. That's not what Baptists do. Baptists do it once a quarter. We break out the shiny silver stuff, and we do it once a quarter. I'm already pushing it to do it once a month. But I told you all when I came that my, my heart and my aim is for our church to be biblical in all that we do. And I would not be doing my job as your pastor if I taught an entire lesson on what the church does when we gather, and I didn't talk about this. Okay? So, I have said my piece, and I'm going to stop. Okay? If you have questions about that, if you have comments about that, if you want to run me out of town, we can talk more about that after I pray and ask the Lord to bless our food, and we'll have an open forum for questions and comments and things like that um, as we eat together. Okay? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for what your word teaches us about your church. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to always seek the truth of scripture as we think about your church. Father, that, that these are things that we would seek to apply to our hearts because they are good and right, not because they are what we want. And Father, I pray that you would work these things in our hearts that above all else we would be unified of one mind with Christ. Father, we ask that you would bless our food and our fellowship, that we would be strengthened and encouraged, and that Christ would be glorified through it and in us. And we pray this in his name. Amen.